You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Well, ladies and gentlemen, lo and behold, look who we found lurking outside with a quill pen in one hand and a book in the other taking notes. Here he is, Dr. History. Good morning, Zeb. How you doing this morning? How's my buddy? I'm doing great. Well, good. What's cooking in the world of historical facts? Well, you know, if you think about the events of the West that really helped carve out the West, there's a few very, very important things that happened. And one of the most important things was the gold rush. Oh, absolutely, yes. So that's what we're going to talk about here is the California gold rush and basically what it kind of spread out to be. Did we ever have a gold rush here in the state of Idaho? Not as much as, say, Colorado, Montana, Nevada, California. But, yeah, there was definitely gold mines, lots and lots of uh, gold mines in Idaho. Okay. We had... What you'd call the... uh, Well, there was kind of minor gold rushes. You know, any time gold was discovered on this creek or that creek or this valley or whatever, yeah, they would swoop in and and, uh, so kind of... There's the major gold rushes and then kind of the minor gold rushes. No, we were better known for the potato rushes. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Golden potatoes. There you go. So, well, those fateful words, you know, gold, gold discovered, you know, and this uh, on the south fork of the American River there in California actually set off one of the largest human avalanches since the Crusades swooped over the Holy Land. I mean, by the fall of 1848, over 10,000 men were chasing the dream of El Dorado over there in the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas. And by 1849, more than 30,000 men sailed to California, while another 41,000 just went overland. Well, within a dozen years, there would be 400,000 miners looking for that elusive pot of gold. Mm. But, you know, gold fever swept the nation, and everyone wanted in on it. Or at least they wanted to read about it. So newspapers, even so-called respectable papers, they tried to outdo each other with competition, printing, uh, uh, you could say, some fantastic stories. Uh, Interestingly enough, some were actually true (laughs) or based on truth. But nevertheless, whatever the story, it all fueled that uh, that lust for a quick fortune. And... uh, 
one paper's lead article told about a hungry hunter who shot a bear and as the bear tumbled over a small cliff and landed on a ledge well when the hunter went to retrieve his bear he looked up the wall and saw a wide vein of quartz sandwiching a rich vein of pure gold mm. and again uh, that's one of those stories you gotta kind of take with a grain of salt but another paper wrote about a claim making forty thousand dollars a day so a newspaper's bread and butter stories were really the uh, first-hand accounts uh and they were taken a lot of times from letters of people that they sent back east to back east to their families. So, uh, in fact, uh, here's a couple of samples. Uh, one headline said, "My little girl has made twenty-five dollars a day panning for gold. My income is one hundred and fifty dollars a day on my claim, or I took a thousand dollars from one panful." So you can imagine if you're back east and you're reading these headlines. I mean, uh, and you're only making a couple of dollars a day. You know, you're you're going to think. Uh, you know, pretty hard about heading west. Absolutely. So, but, you know, however, simply getting to the gold fields was at least half the problem, uh, both by sea and overland, and these were dangerous uh, journeys. Uh, those who couldn't wait for spring and had the money, they hopped on whatever ship was available, and they could sail around the Horn for San Francisco, which was actually about an 18,000-mile trip. Mm. Or a traveler could get off in Panama, uh, which cut the trip in half, but he also added the risk of tropical diseases, you know, malaria, stuff like that, uh, in addition to the risk of traveling by mule and canoeing across the isthmus and then hoping to catch another ship uh, onto California. And, you know, I've got to admire these guys. I, I've had people tell me about going around the, the Cape there in a cruise ship, and uh, the water, I guess, can get so rough that uh, half the crew is sick. So... I don't envy those guys in a sailing ship going around there. How long did it take, uh, time-wise? What, what was it, about a three-month tour? Um, you know, I think it was. 18,000 miles, you know, from New York all the way around. So Holy it, smokes. Know, three to four months. And like I say, if they got off of Panama, and if a, if a ship stopped in Panama on the western side, they had to just hope that they had enough room to throw another guy on board. So it, it was a risk. Once you made the commitment to go on this trip, really, you were really making a commitment. Right. And uh, like I say, sometimes they would actually wait for months down there in Panama because there might be ship after ship come by, but they may not have enough room for it. Yeah, that's true. So, but like I say, the sea journeys, they were quite rough. And in the hope of, hopes of making a large profit, a lot of these captains and ship owners filled every corner of their vessels. So supplies were literally worth their weight in gold, but, you know, greedy owners, they would not turn down cash-paying customers, and food and water on these voyages were bad. There was a lot of sickness because of the overcrowding, and uh, I don't know if you've ever been seasick, Zeb, but uh, <laughs> I just can't imagine being on a crowded, crowded ship and then going up and down and up and down out on the ocean. Oh, I have. As a matter of fact, the uh, first time I really had seasickness, we were on a whale-watching tour in a relatively small little dinghy, and for some reason, sitting out there going up and down on the ocean... I've done that, and it's no fun. I wanted to go home real fast. Yes, I agree with that. Now, so that was bad enough. Now, going overland was probably more dangerous, in fact, uh, in April of 1849, they had a really bad cholera epidemic that hit a lot of the wagon trains. So besides the disease, of course, there were the physical elements of wagon travel, you know, broken wheels, flooded rivers, 
the steep mountains, uh, you know, your animals dying on you, and then, of course, trying to restock your supplies, and then, of course, always the, the threat of Indians. So now, while it, did not, while it did become kind of a mass migration, the beginnings of the California gold rush were a little more humble. I mean, the gold fever concept was really one of the more successful advertising campaigns in Western history, uh, pushed by both business and governments. Um, without this kind of extra help, there still would have been a gold rush, but it may not have been quite such a national obsession. And so often happens the men who were responsible for the discovery of gold in California really didn't uh, capitalize on their discovery. Now, the one guy that everybody's heard about is John Sutter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he'd knocked about in the far west for nearly 10 years before he decided to settle down and carve out his own empire in California. So he built a nice home on a rich section of land in the Sacramento Valley. And this was about, oh, 1830, right in there. So he was close to the Sacramento and American rivers. Now, he was a pretty cautious man, so he actually constructed a fort. It was called Fort Sutter. And within a few years, his settlement kind of thrived and grew. He built a mill, a tannery, a winery. Uh, he planted wheel, uh, wheat in the fields. Uh, he developed herds on the pasture lands, and he hired local Indians uh, to work for him. And this guy was from Switzerland. He was a Swiss guy, and he made a really nice, comfortable living, uh, fairly prosperous. And he raised enough for his own needs, and then he sold whatever extra he had to other settlers. Well, after about 10 successful years, Sutter had prospered to the point where he needed a lumber mill uh, to provide materials for his expansion plan. Well, besides, it would be good business, so he could, he could make a small fortune uh, selling his lumber to his neighbors. So since Fort Sutter was built on the plains, there was very little uh, usable lumber right around there. So Sutter knew of several good places to cut uh, timber, so he didn't have to, uh, time to do the work himself, so he hired a guy by the name of Marshall. Now, he sent Marshall to scout out locations for this new mill, and with Sutter's blessings, Marshall decided the best location was about 40 miles to the northeast on what they call the South Fork of the American River. Now, according to their agreement, Sutter would underwrite the costs of the mill, and Marshall would run the day-to-day operation. Well, by the end of the summer, Marshall had broken ground for the operations on the site. He built a cabin, he built a lumber mill uh, building, and, and a small dam. Well, so January 24th, 1848, Marshall was walking down the ditch looking at his handiwork when he noticed some pieces of yellow flake. Well, he got a tin plate, he went down to the river to pan the contents. Well, it didn't take him very long to see that he had some color in, uh, in this plate, in his panning. Mm-hmm. And he thought this was kind of curious. So that night, he opened the gate on the dam, ran some water through the ditch again. The next morning, he shut off the gate let the ditch dry out, and again walked down this ditch and found a piece of gold half the size of a pea. Now, that may not sound very big, but uh, really, it was, you know, fairly substantial. Absolutely. he called his men over and he showed them, and by now he was kind of getting a little excited, as you can imagine, when you talk about gold fever. And, in fact, he says, my eye was caught by something shining in the bottom of the ditch. I reached my hand down and picked it up, and it was gold, no question. So after kind of collecting himself, he rode off to Fort Sutter in a pounding rainstorm, and Marshall explained the situation to Sutter behind closed doors, and he asked if he could test the nuggets and the dust. Well, he showed Sutter his poke of uh, pouring out a handful of this gold dust and, and little tiny nuggets, and anyway, Sutter inspected the gold and performed some tests to make sure that it really was gold. 
And several days later, Sutter rode out to the mill to take a look at, uh, at the find for himself. Now, he told the men to keep the discovery private. Well, you know how that goes. And uh, while well, he considered what to do. Well, he went to the local Indians and he bought up the land all around the mill for practically nothing because uh, he anticipated what was going to happen. Well, there's a man by the name of Sam, Bran- Sam Brannan. Now, uh, keep this guy in mind a little okay. bit. He's kind of an entrepreneur. And he had an eye for business. Well, Sam Brennan established a flour mill and started a newspaper called the California Star. And this was the first newspaper in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Well, when he heard about the gold strike, he planned to capitalize. He wasn't interested in picking or pan, and he felt the biggest profit could be realized by outfitting and selling to the miners. And we know from past stories that that's where a lot of people really made their money, was uh, mining the miners, so to speak. Well, Brandon started by opening up a store near Sutter's Mill, which he stocked with food and picks and shovels and pans and all the gear that a miner needed to, to work. And gold in California was nothing new. Claims had been filed from time to time with some success. Uh, for example, in Los Angeles, there had been a gold strike, but just didn't make the headlines uh, like this one did. Well, this Brandon guy, uh, he did his best to publicize the find. Uh, he promoted the discovery. He walked through San Francisco waving his hat for folks to gather around, and he held up a bottle of nuggets and dust, you know, shouting gold, gold, you know. And Well, by June, the rush was on in that region, and nearly all of Sutter's workers deserted him to go dig for gold. And accounts say that San Francisco nearly became a ghost town because every man who could pick up a shovel was heading for the foothills to get rich. Well, in August, the military governor, uh, Colonel Mason, uh, made an official tour of the gold field. And he figured that more than 4,000 men were working the fields, and the number was growing. And they suggested that some of the best claims were producing thirty to $50,000 a day. Wow. So, you know, back in that day, 1848, 49, 30,000 to 50,000 a day. So I have a question here, though. I have a question. Okay. Why in the world, and I'm sure this has struck you while you were doing your research on the gold fields and everything, why wouldn't the people that found gold keep their mouths shut and want more of it for themselves? You know, time and time again, I've seen that. They just can't keep their mouths shut. Yeah. Typically, they head to town and uh, have a few drinks and pretty soon they're uh, they're telling everybody everything and then you have your great a lot of times end up dead there you go yeah so but anyway this gold strike was a really good thing uh president james polk was president then and uh they'd recently had the mexican war uh and uh, california was one of the acquisitions of that war but with gold he figured that that would be a great thing for the country uh to help kind of restock their money supply and again newspaper headlines told of overnight fortunes money was to be made not just in gold but in outfitting all these men that were headed out there well Sutter let's get back to him Uh, he was never able to sell the land that he had bought from the Indians because uh, so many people swamped in uh, they claimed sales were hopeless he had no way of enforcing his trespassing laws and by the end of the summer more than 10,000 men were looking for gold. Mm. And San Francisco was basically kind of deserted. I mean, it uh, became a, but it did become a boom town overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at one time, even the banks were open 24 hours a day. Now, here again, here's where the miners got mined. Uh, in 1849, a boarding house might have, uh, at 20 to, uh, might have 20 to 100 uh, cots in one room. 
Oh, my. To 100, just in one room. Oh, and a cot cost $20 a week for an eight-hour shift. In other words, you only got your cot for eight hours, and then you were out. Oh, the next time you got the next eight hours. Huh. So, uh, anyway, you had to supply your own bedding. Uh, now, a lot in town that sold for $21 in 1847 might sell for five to 7000 in 1849, and the same lot a few years later, thirty to forty thousand for a lot in San Francisco. You know, and really, we complain about inflation today, but 150 years ago, they had inflation that was almost, uh, when you figure the percentages, worse than it is today. Oh yeah, huge. Yeah, and by 1847, uh, you know, there was less than 500 people in San Francisco. Two years later. There was at least 25,000. Holy so, cow. Uh, anyway, the strike spread out from Sutter's Mill. Uh, north of Sutter's Mill, uh, they had uh, mines up there that two mines took over 300 pounds of nuggets and dust in two weeks. 200, 300 pounds. And, uh, in fact, there was one story where some miners stopped to catch some fish. They cooked their salmon, and they started to clean up dishes. And as they cleaned up their dishes, they found gold in the bottom of the pot they'd been cooking the fish in oh my cleaned up in the creek huh anyway the gold strike lasted until about the mid 1850s and they figure about 400 million worth of gold found its way to san francisco alone and altogether about 600 million in gold was taken uh from those gold fields uh by about 1860 now while the california gold strike was probably the most important in the 1800s uh as i mentioned as far as settling the west it really wasn't the most lucrative. Uh, the, the famous Nevada Comstock load, uh, which is right over in there, produced over 400 million in 1859. And then the Black Hills uh, Homestake Mine in 1876, they figure it produced a billion dollars in gold. Holy Probably smokes. The single richest mine in history. Oh my. Dollars back then. Goodness sakes. The only guy that was left in San Francisco was Paladin. Yeah, that's right. Or Soapy Smith. Yeah. <laughs> but now in Deadwood, South Dakota, over 100000 worth of gold a day was being uh, transacted. And then in Colorado, uh, mines there have produced mo more gold overall than even California. Wow. But like I say, there were, there were other areas that really produced more. Like I say, Deadwood, uh, and then you get up into Nevada, uh, you know, uh, the Virginia City area. I mean, there's just lots of gold that was taken throughout the whole West. What caused the declination of the search or the rabid search for gold? I mean, when what was the last straw? You know, that's a good question. I, uh, I think it just gradually, it's one of those things that uh, as they would rush from one strike to another strike to another strike, I think some of these guys just finally got to the realization that they weren't going to make uh, big, big bucks. And I think some of them just finally gave up and went home. Yeah. And, and then there's those that did make a lot of money and just uh, quit. Uh, and I think that it, it got harder and harder to mine these, uh, these mines. Yeah. Or these gold strikes. And that's when they started bringing in these, uh, what they call these uh, stamps. That would, uh, they'd pull out the ore, stamp the ore, and then they'd use other methods uh, you know, to to get the gold out of the out of the ore. Well, you know, they it's always harder and harder 
for just a single miner with a pan. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, they always said that uh, being a hard rock miner, you know, or a gold miner, uh, boy, you can make your fortune. But you know something? For the one that might make it, there were literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds that uh, they broke their backs or broke their souls and ended up with nothing. Right. Well, we've talked about the Klondike and the thousands of men that went into the Klondike and so relatively few actually really made any money. Yeah, well, I know living proof of one that made it big, and he went to chiropractory school and made it millions and millions of dollars. Uh, Dr. Ken Turner, you might know him. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, that's a well-kept secret in Burley, Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> so well-kept, I don't think he even knows it. <laughs> you know, you did it again with a great story, and uh, doggone it, it's always good to have you on the air. But we want to remind everybody real quick before we run out of time, dr-history.com. What does that mean? Dr-history.com. You can go listen anytime, anywhere, even when you're driving down the road on your smartphone to any of the probably 12 or 15 stories we have on there now, including today's story. And I actually checked on the stats, and we actually have listeners in Japan, China, uh, Europe, uh, South America, and I don't know where these people are hearing about us, but uh, we're actually getting... Um, listeners from really literally all over the world right now holy cow we haven't severed relations with any country have we well uh, that's why we got to keep this uh, uh family oriented okay. <laughs> <laughs> dr history you always do such a great job dr ken turner and by the way this weekend's going to be a special day for you and i salute you as being one of the nicest guys in the world well i appreciate it Zev. it's been uh you know i as you know i'm retiring and uh I'm just looking forward to a little more free time, and uh, I've got a nephew that's taken over for me, and he's going to do a great job here in my office. All right. Well, listen, I thank you so much, but we're going to continue on with Dr. History. You bet. We will. All right. God bless you, man. Thank you. You have a good day, Zach. All right. Remember, if you want to listen to these podcasts, be sure and write it down, Dr. Dash History.com. Okay? Very, very interesting.